What's up, everyone? I'm Katherine Rutter, and you're listening to Life in the Fast Chain, our second episode. Time has flown by since I posted the last one. I am so excited to share that we have a great episode for you, the highlight being Colin Platt, one of the hosts of the podcast Blockchain Insider by 11FS. He'll be talking about a plethora of things, including what he's learned about applying blockchain at banks, what some of the hurdles the financial industry has to overcome before blockchain becomes mainstream in the enterprise space, his paper titled Implementing Derivatives Clearing on Distributed Ledger Technology Platforms, and much, much more. We are so lucky to have stolen some of his time for the podcast. But first, let's hear our blockchain bite. This week's blockchain bite is what is a node? Now, for some of us, this may be very obvious, but for the rest of us, I think it's good to get down to the basics. So remember, uh, the blockchain bites are written by our research team, and you can find some more at r3.com slash research. So a node is a data point on a distributed ledger or blockchain network. It is a virtual point made up of a collection of computers, also known as a highly available cluster, such that if one computer goes down, another can take its place. In a distributed ledger, nodes are the points through which uh, information is sent and distributed. Each node contains a full set of relevant information from the ledger, copy of the blockchain. Nodes in the network can validate transactions, add them to their copy of the ledger, and broadcast these transactions to other nodes in the network. In a decentralized blockchain, nodes, rather than a trusted third party, maintain the network. In a centralized system, however, each node is privy only to transactions that are relevant. Nodes ensure that a transaction is valid and maintain a ledger's record of consensus. In the Bitcoin blockchain, nodes are used to confirm blocks and to secure the network. However, while the Bitcoin network records transaction data in blocks, these blocks are not necessary in instances where only two parties must be aware of the details of a transaction. Even if a node is unable to see the contents of an agreement, it can independently verify that all of the required authorizations have been made in a transaction. That's pretty cool. In a given transaction, both nodes involved can ensure its validity, meaning that the content is consistent between both parties, while the finality or uniqueness of a transaction, meaning that it has not been previously spent, must be established by the uniqueness service. So this kind of comes back to what we always say here at R3, that you want to make sure that what I see is what you see at all times, so nodes can confirm this. On our platform, a uniqueness service is a type of node or a collection of nodes operating under some consensus mechanism that verifies transaction inputs have not been previously spent, thus eliminating the risk of a double spending problem. In this sense, a uniqueness service essentially performs the function of a trusted third party. Note that in order to perform this function, the uniqueness service does not necessarily need to see all the details of the transaction. Now let's listen to my interview with Colin. I'm here with Colin Platt, who is the host of my favorite blockchain podcast, Blockchain Insider by 11FS. Thanks for joining us today, Colin. 
Thanks for having me. I'm on my favorite blockchain <laughs> podcast, Life in the Fast Chain. You're too kind. I have to write that down in my diary later. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. So um, I, I do uh, the Blockchain Insider podcast alongside with Simon Taylor. Uh, my background is um, in banking. I used to work at BNP Paribas uh, in Paris, London, New York. Um, and I, I set up a company called Depactum uh, looking at derivatives and spe specifically equity index derivatives and how they might be integrated within to um, blockchains or DLTs. Um, since since uh, I did that, I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, doing consulting around cryptocurrencies and blockchains for a number of different clients, uh, including uh, financial in industry groups, uh, other technology companies, as well as um, some startups that are looking at trying to do this on their own, uh, with lots of interest in specifically the cryptocurrency side as of recent. Cool. So yes, you worked at uh, BNP Paribas and Depactum. Can you explain some yep. of the things that you learned implementing blockchain technology at banks? Um, so I learned that this is a very early stage technology. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was at BNP, um, some of our big uh, big ticket items were actually getting involved with uh, R3. Uh, we became a member in 2015 when I was there. Um, it was it was very exciting times, as I guess uh, you and your colleagues remember. Uh, it was still just in the formative stages of what R3 could be uh, and yeah. understanding what it meant for banks to join the consortium. Um, it was before Corda had been fully worked out, and I remember those things after I left the bank yeah. uh, at the end of 2015. Um, I, I think what going on with the early stage, there's lots of things where we're trying to figure out what is a good use case, what's not a good use case of DLT, whether it's um, Corda whether it's another type of technology, whether it's a public or private blockchain. Um, and then there's all the other questions about um, what happens downstream, everything outside the blockchain, all the other layers and things on top of that of how you keep track of those inside of a bank. And I think a lot of those are still open questions, um, regardless of the technology we're using at that uh, blockchain layer. So do you think that integration into existing bank systems is as difficult as they say? I think it's probably harder, if I'm being honest. Um, I, I, it's it's two things. I say that flippantly. Um, there there are a lot of moving pieces, and mm -hmm. if we start to go with the idea, and let's talk specifically about what you guys do at R three and with Corda, um, if we start to go with this notion of sharing business logic interorganization, as Lee Brain from Barclays puts it. Mm -hmm. um, we're also talking about changing how inside of an organization we operate with that data. We have new sets of data that didn't exist before. We just had people meshing stuff together through emails, through writing stuff down uh, after they get off the phone or whatever it was, pushing buttons. And now we have something where computers are talking to other organizations' computers. What are all the things that we need to think about and the fail-safes that we need to have inside of an organization if our computers can actually reach out and deal with another organization um, in a bilateral way? And I think the other thing that is just starting to be understood is um, when you start to make that leap and those changes, there's lots of things that happen inside of business that may or may not need to happen again in the future and lots of new considerations um, that have never been uh, necessary before. So I think this will really fundamentally change a lot of business models and the ways that financial services uh, operate, mm -hmm. which I think is generally a positive thing for the companies that are ready to make those investments and ready to make those changes. Um, because there's always the risk that somebody else will go out and jump ahead. How do you think uh, blockchain will impact businesses in the short and in the long term? 
I think um, short term to me, what it feels like uh, is there's a lot of things brewing specifically. Let's talk within DLT, not on the cryptocurrency side uh, to get started. I think there's a, there's a lot of interest coming in with how these things will help around the periphery. Um, we've seen some of these projects come out to talk about how we might share some some data between different organizations. We might have um, information around um, static data types where uh, we call a bond a certain name and we just all agree this bond has that, that criteria. Um, that is that is a very obvious use case to me of using something like Corda. And I think if, if you start to evolve that, you can actually move the assets themselves into, into blockchains or DLT. Now, on the other side, the, the more radical new asset technologies, um, we've already seen in the last few months, um, companies can start to come online with uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum linked uh, assets, and those will have an impact quite directly on businesses that need to service those in very traditional manners. Now, they're not servicing those today through a blockchain, but they have thrown a lot of interesting questions up about how do I reconcile a Bitcoin trade with the CME, or if I'm receiving collateral to hedge that trade, which I'm not aware of any um, large banks doing quite yet, but it is imaginable that it could happen in the foreseeable future, especially as we start to see large-scale acquisitions of cryptocurrencies exchanges by more, um, let's say, developed companies that, that don't work in kind of that cowboy territory. Uh, it is imaginable that uh, we could use Bitcoin as an asset between different funds, between different players, different corporates, and that might be something that banks eventually become involved with. Okay, so what are the some of the main hurdles the industry still needs to overcome before blockchain becomes mainstream in the enterprise space? So, so let me let me hit on that last part in there. I think um, the idea of mainstream is something that is still um, up for debate in this. Mm-hmm. I, I would not say that uh, everything needs to be blockchainified. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of use cases out there. There's a lot of different aspects that are better serviced with other technologies yeah. uh, that have worked for a long time. Um, when I think the 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 way to ask this is when are blockchains going to find where they excel better than anything else or DLTs or cryptocurrencies for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long will that take and what are some of the problems? And I think um, implicit in that response is, what are these things really good at? Where are they indispensable? Or where can we um, produce new results that could never before be realized? And it's not just a, how can we shave 10 or 20 or 30% of the cost out? It's really, how are we servicing a client and making new revenues? that never existed before because we did not have Corda, Mm -hmm. because we did not have Bitcoin. Um, And I think a lot of those things are still uh, very hard to imagine because they're still very conceptual and they're hard to see. Um, So I think, A, uh, the answer is, what are those things? How do we get there? And what are the challenges around that? And then there's a lot of basic challenges that we talked about earlier, such as how do we plug these things into our existing systems? Uh, What are some of the additional systems we need to build around them for controls uh, and for um, just general management of the business? Yeah. So outside of finance, uh, which industries do you think blockchain holds the most potential for? I know before we were talking about not really wanting to jump out of finance yet, but um, we've here yeah. at R3, we've been talking a lot about like insurance and, and other things that would be useful for blockchain. So what do you think? Well, I, uh, insurance is a hard one because that's, that's um, depending on what part of insurance, yeah. it really bridges a lot of the same questions as finance. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think if you if you separate out insurance, there's a lot of good use cases, um, at least from my knowledge of insurance, which admittedly is quite weak, um, seem to make sense 
at least to the same extent that they make sense elsewhere. Um, I, I'm quite interested in the idea of public blockchains being used for voting. Um, for those that were following um, the, the Catalonian separation uh, referendum that happened several months ago in Spain, um, one of the things they used was actually uh, a system called IPFS, which is now using something called Filecoin. Mm -hmm. um, this was a decentralized data storage. I could imagine that um, controversial votes where they feel like they need to have backups or other types of nascent democracy, especially in um, more developing countries, might like the idea that they can hold their data in many different places, that if somebody tries to corrupt that or otherwise make it unavailable, um, that it could quickly be recovered and, and continue to service that. Um, so I think that's an interesting use case. Yeah. Um, all of the, the questions you need around whether that really fully makes sense or if another technology couldn't service it better, I'm up for debate about, but I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah, that's very interesting. We could we could use that here in the uh, U.S. Um, <laughs> so back to financial. Well, definitely, you know, around Twitter, yeah. right? <laughs> Uh, we could definitely benefit. Um, so back to financial services, what do you think are some of the most interesting and exciting use cases for enterprise uh, blockchain you've seen so far? I think I think the more interesting things long term are, are first around the new asset classes that spring out of public blockchains. Cryptocurrencies, yeah. I think, are extremely exciting, um, whether they'll change everything and destroy banks. I'm skeptical about. But I think that um, the, the bigger question is, how do banks change as a result of cryptocurrencies, not how do cryptocurrencies change banks themselves? Um, and I think some of those are starting to, as I, as I alluded to, starting to come about where we could have new savings products um, or we could have new uh, sources of moving money around that banks need to, to adapt to. And we've heard noise come out of some of the larger U.S. banks very recently, either for or against that mm -hmm. idea. Um, but where I'm really interested personally are large financial markets infrastructure, so-called FMIs, yeah. where right now they, they operate as a bunch of silos where banks plug into them. But it's not only that a bank would have to plug into a single one, like you could imagine um, most small banks can plug into their local re uh, Federal Reserve branch or their local central bank uh, outside the U.S., it's um, it's something where they need to interoperate. And that's where I'm setting off a risk against another counterparty. And then I'm doing something in a very different uh, area. Nobody has a complete view over the risk that I'm taking. And that's either um, underestimating or overestimating the risk. Um, so I, I think this really starts to come in with the idea of derivatives and how you can put a lot of this knowledge inside of a peer-to-peer -peer system uh, share some of the the application knowledge, share some of the view of where that risk is at an appropriate level and have it managed more effectively. Okay, so speaking of derivatives, for those of us who don't know much about derivatives, can you give us a little background on, on exactly what you mean by yeah. this? Because now my next few questions are all about derivatives, so we got to throw a little background Excellent. in there. <laughs> My favorite thing. So um, really, in short, a derivative is a, a type of financial product that uh, is linked to another one. Um, so the, the two clearest things out there are, are forwards, futures, or options. Um, so these are contracts that allow me to um, either gain a position long or short, meaning if something goes up or if something goes down, of another financial product or non-financial product. So uh, the most popular ones out there are things like uh, currencies. So we could have an option on whether the euro versus the dollar price goes up or on a commodity like oil. Maybe I have a belief that the price of oil will go down 
and you you believe the other direction. Um, so essentially, at some point in the future, we agree to exchange the difference between today and that point in the future. That would be a future if it's traded inside of an exchange or forward if we just trade it bilaterally. An option would be very similar where I pay you some money today and if the price of oil goes up, you have to pay me the difference between whatever price we set today and that price in the future. If it goes down though, I just lose my money. Okay. So you uh, wrote a paper actually with our uh, research team here can you summarize a few main points from that paper? It's called Implementing Derivatives Learning on Distributed Ledger Platforms. Yeah, so really interesting paper that we wrote um, late last year. Um, so within derivatives that we were talking about, uh, there's, there's two further segments. Um, there's cleared or uncleared. And what a cleared derivative means is um, there's a, a party that sits in the middle, and we call them central clearing counterparties or CCPs. Mm -hmm. And they split that contract in half. So I might believe that the price of oil is going to go up and you believe it's going to go down. We're matched in an exchange. And then we both take that contract to a clearinghouse. They slice the contract in half and they face me and then they face you. So they have a perfectly offsetting risk, meaning they don't lose any money if the price of oil goes up or down. Why that's beneficial is if one day I decide I'm not going to pay you the money I owe you or vice versa, they have uh, some recourse to come in and sell off some of my positions and make sure that you get paid what you should get paid. And then they can put somebody else in my position. Um, we started to look at this from uh, a DLT point of view and why that might be beneficial, because you can imagine um, a lot of the notion of distributed ledgers is how I can link peer to peer. Um, and this is a, a market where you don't necessarily have peer to peer. In fact, you have everybody going through this central clearing counterparty. What we found was there, there's perhaps a lot of benefits where these contracts could be managed in a peer-to-peer -peer way, um, where, as I said earlier, we could offset against multiple different clearinghouses where I might have a risk on oil against you in the United States, but I turn around and with somebody else, I might have a risk going the other direction on oil in Germany. So I might want to match those two risks where at the end of the day, I don't have any risk and I just want you to offset those payments through me into somebody else in Germany. Um, you start to see where you can get a more accurate picture of the risk that you're taking and that I'm taking that my counterparty in Germany is taking. And you can start to move that money, those payments very quickly back and forth. There's an added benefit where the, the central clearing counterparties that are responsible for managing that risk that I may default because the price of oil goes up or down too much, uh, start to get a benefit that they can move those payments on my behalf if I'm not able to make the payments or if I just fail to make those payments. So do you think that uncleared derivatives will be put on a distributed ledger before cleared derivatives? Or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I think they already have been uh, from an uncleared point of view. Um, so there are, going back to the cryptocurrencies, um, there are people out there right now who have already created um, on top of a public blockchain like Ethereum, some form of derivatives. Um, there's, there's been for a little while now, uh, spread betting inside of Bitcoin built right into Bitcoin. Um, they're very nascent markets and they're not as developed as when we think about a cleared or an unclear derivative, but, but they are operated at least at a very small retail level inside of those markets. Now, if you, if you zoom out and you say, when, when are we going to get these into um, more uh, large-scale wholesale finance businesses? I think Uncleared um, are starting to gain more tractions, if for no other reason that you only need two counterparties to agree yeah. to use a platform. Whereas you might need a, a clearinghouse or a CCP to sign up and say, yes, we're willing to sit in the middle. 
I think there is a benefit in, in the cleared, uh, more so than the uncleared, however, because um, they're able to reach out and set up a platform that has a much broader reach. So uh, one of your, your members is um, the Brazilian Clearinghouse and Exchange Group, um, B3. Uh, yeah, B3. Um, they could very easily uh, go out if they had a platform set up to all the clearing member banks inside of Brazil or on the Brazilian market and start to say, this is an alternative to our existing system and here are all the benefits. Would you like to sign up and start using it? It's very clear to see because they have that central position that they could more easily roll out a decentralized platform, quite ironically, than if all of the banks decided we're going to start turning on one at a time where Bank A could trade with Bank B, could trade with Bank C, could trade with Bank D. Um, it's just a, a critical mass aspect that they inherently have inside of a clear derivative that isn't necessarily um, possible in the same way with an unclear derivative. So this is your bread and butter. Is there anything else you want to hit us with on derivatives before we oh, leave you? I, I, I probably hit you with a lot of no, things. No, it's good. There. I have to write all this down and study it. <laughs> well, derivatives are, I think derivatives are very interesting. I think there's there's lots of other benefits in, in blockchains that uh, you can start putting logic around how an asset's treated itself. And this is, this is really kind of the idea that um, we've been talking about for a little while, where um, rather than assets existing as a, as a series of contracts between different parties or liabilities between different parties, they start to become something that looks more like a computer programmer would call an object or, or a class. Mm -hmm. And this means that um, rather than a bond being something where a company, let's, let's just pick a company and say GE, owes its uh, bondholders money based off of these contracts, mm -hmm. the bond just sits inside of a DLT and it's serviced accordingly. So that means GE needs to pour money in, the investors or the holders get that money out, but it all flows according to this logic that's shared amongst all of the the interested parties, whether that's all the, the bondholders and the bond issuer, or whether that's between different banks and the bond issuer, I don't know. Um, but it starts to really bring up a couple of interesting different ideas. You could extend this logic into more complicated debt instruments like um, collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, which are another form of derivative and um, were um, one of the, the major uh, issues in the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And a lot of that was due to the lack of transparency and the lack of uh, ability for anybody to really understand what was underneath that. If you move that into a completely digital realm, where all of that information is accessible, uh, you start to reduce some of those risks, potentially. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I'm so much smarter, but I, uh, I have a lot that I need to research now. Um, I think we're going to need to have you on the podcast again if you have a, ch a chance in the future. I'd, have to, I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> You've been a great guest. Thank you so much. Where thank can everyone you. follow you and hear the greatest and latest updates from Colin Platt. Uh, we have a weekly podcast, Blockchain Insider. You can find it at bi.11fs.com. Mm -hmm. You can find me on Twitter at Colin G. Platt. Uh, that's Colin with one L, Platt with two Ts. Great. Okay, everyone follow Colin on Twitter and listen to Blockchain Insider. Thank you so much again. That's all I have for you guys this week, but check back next time for more. I hope you guys like the podcast so far. As always, please let us know what you want to hear. To make it easy, you can email social at r3.com and please rate the podcast in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen. It makes a big difference for us at this early stage in the podcast. 
We will be incorporating more of your feedback in the coming episodes. Thank you so much for listening.